0: Section seven of the Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter five, part two. The Mother of Nero. For a few years after Nero's accession, his mother willingly and profitably ruled in his name. It must not be imagined that she had, with the astuteness of a Marie de' Medici, educated him in an indifference to politics so that she might indulge her own ambition. The appointment of Seneca as his tutor is the most creditable, though unhappily the most futile, act of her career. When, however, the young emperor refused to be interested in any problem graver than the art of driving a chariot or playing the flute, she undertook his imperial duties, or continued to have that share in the ruling of the empire which she had had under Claudius. She received embassies, was surrounded by a special German guard when she went abroad, and was associated with nero on the coinage it would be difficult to measure with any precision the influence which she had on roman affairs during this period since seneca and burrus had an equal if not greater part in the government but it may be recalled with some honour to her that the first four years of nero's reign were amongst the happiest and most prosperous that rome witnessed during the first century. The first thing to trouble her prosperous and happy use of power was a certain discontent arising from the old prejudice against women in politics. The senators were annoyed because she injudiciously listened to their debates. They met at this time in the imperial library, and the empress had a door pierced into it from the palace and sat listening behind a curtain. The senators are said to have punished her indiscretion by making unflattering remarks in the course of the debates, though it is difficult to believe that they were still capable of so courageous a protest. On one occasion an important embassy came to Rome from Armenia, and Agrippina declared that she would sit by the side of Nero when he received it. This seems to have been a startling innovation, and Seneca had to avert trouble by advising Nero to descend from his throne when his mother entered, and lead her affectionately from the room. An incident that shortly occurred gave a nucleus for the crystallization of this diffused annoyance. A distinguished noble, Junius Silanus, died and the familiar whisper of foul play went once more through all classes of the citizens. His brother Lucius Salanus was the young noble who had been betrothed to Octavia, and had so cruelly been separated from her by Agrippina. Was it not natural that Junius Silanus should wish to avenge his younger brother, and that Agrippina should detect his plot and have him removed from? Tacitus and Dio fully believed this. As in so many of these cases, however, the only ground for the charge, as far as we know, is the fact that Selenus undoubtedly died, and we will not waste time in discussing it. The senator had so little of the conspirator in him that even Caligula used to call him the golden sheep. But Rome was convinced that the empress was guilty, and the story spread and is fully accepted by tacitus that she mediated a long series of executions of the men who had opposed her progress and that seneca and burrus had to restrain her bloody vindictiveness one may decline to accept this charge on such poor and disputable evidence But Agrippina now incurred the anger of her son, and descended rapidly from the height of her power. The young emperor had, as I said, used his imperial license to ignore his tutors and indulge his low and sensual tastes. He attracted to his side a band of the most dissipated youths in the city, and his knightly exploits were the talk of Rome." One of the less hurtful of his indulgences was his passion for Act, a beautiful freed slave from the Eastern Market, whom Dumas has made familiar. Agrippina resented the liaison, apparently from a sense of justice to Octavia, and rebuked Nero. He turned on her with violence the moment she tried to check his licentious ways and threatened to discharge her favorite palace agrippina was alarmed she saw a powerful party deeply hostile to herself growing up about her son and she felt that the support of seneca and burrus was being withdrawn she ceased to speak of act and regarded with silent distress the coarse ways that her son was exhibiting on the streets every night A reconciliation at this heavy price could not last. Shortly afterwards, Nero sent her some rich jewels and robes from the imperial treasures. She chose to regard this as a reminder that the imperial wardrobe was no longer at her disposal, and angrily refused the gifts. Pallas was at once impeached for treason. The charge was so clumsy, and Seneca defended him so ably, that he had to be acquitted. But Agrippina forgot discretion in her victory. In the course of a quarrel with Nero, she threatened to retire to the camp of the Praetorian guard with Britannicus, and have him proclaimed emperor. The only effect of this was to open Nero's long career of crime. The few months we are still at the beginning of the year, fifty-five, of unrestrained license and flattery, had destroyed the little moral restraint that Seneca had taught him, and he determined to murder Britannicus. In the Roman prison was the skilled poisoner, Locusta, whom Agrippina was believed to have employed in the murder of her husband. Nero ordered her to prepare a deadly poison, and when the first preparation failed he had her brought to the palace with blows and oaths he forced her to prepare a more deadly drug under his eyes and it was used the same evening britannicus sat with his friends on one of the couches in the dining hall at the palace and asked for a drink it was winter time and the wine not soup as Servius says was heated He complained that it was too hot, and the poison was administered with the cooling water so that the taster would not need to take a second sip. A great horror fell upon the room as Britannicus, writhing with pain, sank to the floor. Octavia sat in silent terror by the side of her husband, who carelessly observed that Britannicus had one of his usual epileptic fits. Agrippina openly betrayed her horror and disgust, and from that date was regarded by her son with bitter hostility. Whether or not it be true that Nero whitened with chalk the spots which broke out on the body, the substance of the story cannot be discredited. It is true that Nero was yet in his eighteenth year only but his conduct had been vicious and unbridled to a criminal extent. Within a very short time we shall find him sinking to the lowest depths of brutality. The fact that he is praised in the Treatise on Clemency, which Seneca wrote about that time, can only show either that the too-indulgent tutor refused to believe the crime— or that, as we have too many reasons to know, the distinguished Stoic came perilously close to that art of casuistry in which moralists of many schools have been apt to excel. In her abhorrence of the foul deed, Agrippina drew closer to the tender and virtuous Octavia and confronted Nero with a sternness that had been too long delayed. The breach between them widened. One day Nero ordered that two and a half million denarii should be given to his favorite secretary. Agrippina had the mass of coin brought under the eyes of the emperor to make him realize his extravagance. He laughingly observed that he did not think the sum was so small and ordered it to be doubled. The more lavishly he squandered, the more carefully Agrippina saved until the frivolous or malicious companions of his revels suggested that she was gathering funds for the purpose of dethroning him. He at once withdrew the guard he had given her, and ordered her to leave his palace. Agrippina had enjoyed only for one year the power which she had sought so long. She was yet only in her fortieth year. The envoys of kings had sued humbly at her feet, and her litter and guard had flashed through the streets of Rome with an impression of greatness that no other woman then known had ever possessed. But the reins passed from her hands to her brutal son and his despicable courtiers. From the palace she passed, with a few devoted followers, to the small mansion of her grandmother Antonia and the sycophantic courtiers deserted her. Graver citizens, watching the rapid degradation of the imperial house, followed her with sympathy, but few dared to visit her in the lonely mansion. Unfortunately, she quarreled with one of these few, and came near to losing her life. Her old friend, Julia Silana, a woman of great wealth but very faded beauty, proposed to marry a handsome young Roman knight. Agrippina imprudently advised him not to marry a woman of such advanced years and so adventurous a record. Her words were repeated to Julia, and friendship was exchanged for the most bitter animosity. Julia Silana was childless, and it is conjectured that Agrippina hoped to inherit her wealth if she died unmarried. Whether she believed this or no, Julia conceived a deep hatred and induced two of her clients to accuse Agrippina of high treason. Nero seems to have been in an uncertain mood, and an ingenious plot was devised to win him. One night, when he lay flushed with wine after the banquet, his favorite comedian, Paris, came to amuse him. Nero noticed that the man was agitated and less merry than usual, and asked the reason. Paris, who was acting in the service of the plotters, confessed with artistic tears that there was a conspiracy afoot to dethrone his noble master that Agrippina was about to marry Rubelius Plautus, a senator of imperial descent, and seize the throne. The inebriated emperor at once demanded their heads, but Seneca and Burrus restrained him, and compelled him to hear Agrippina on the morrow. In her speech, which Tacitus has preserved, she refuted and routed her assailants with such vigor that she was apparently reconciled to Nero and restored to some authority. Julia Silana was banished, Domitia's chamberlain, who had instructed the actor, was executed, and Agrippina's own followers were rewarded. The two years that followed this reconciliation are obscure, and we can only dimly conjecture that Agrippina had some peace and prestige, but no longer shared the imperial rule. Then, in the year fifty-eight, another and unexpected woman came into the field, and Agrippina sank rapidly toward an abyss of tragedy." In an earlier chapter, we saw that Messalina drove to death a very wealthy and beautiful Roman lady named Poppaea Sabina. It was her daughter, who had inherited her wealth and her beauty, that now attracted the amorous regard of the emperor. She had married one of Nero's favorite companions, who babbled in his cups of her dazzling beauty and inflamed the desire of Nero. In the next chapter we shall read of her natural charms, of the singular art with which she cultivated them, and the coquetry with which she employed them, and of the superb and fabulous splendor of her equipage. It is enough to say here that Nero visited her, learned that she was willing to be an empress, but not the mistress of an emperor and resolved to make any sacrifice to secure so unique a treasure. The first victim to be sacrificed to the new passion was Octavia, and the delicate and timid girl would make little resistance. But Agrippina had espoused her cause with a spirit that redeems much of her irregular conduct, and she now saw that her own interest, as well as that of Octavia, required that she should oppose Popea with all her strength. In that resolution she wrote her death sentence, not ignobly. Even if we refuse to admit some of the incredible statements that are made regarding it in the Chronicles, it is clear that an extraordinary struggle now took place about the person of the Emperor. The antagonists were Popea and Agrippina. Octavia was one of those frail, lily-like Roman women who never struggled. Papea's husband was easily set aside. Papea affected coyness and refused to have any other than conjugal relations with Nero, while she employed all her charms to inflame him. Agrippina fought so desperately that Roman gossip and Roman historians ascribed the most infamous devices to her. In spite of his expression of doubt, it is plain that Tacitus shares the popular belief, which he relates, that Agrippina used to sit with her son in loose robes when he was heated with wine, and to ride in the same litter with him against this charge however dio defends her he says that one of nero's courtesans resembled his mother and that a light remark of his on that circumstance gave birth to the libel Poppaea would not be indisposed to encourage the story on the other hand mr Gould attempts an untenable defence when he speaks of agrippina as the poor old lady She was only in her forty-second year, and was a woman of great beauty and little scruple. Whatever arts Agrippina employed in the struggle, she rapidly lost ground before so formidable a rival, and Poppaea incited Nero against her. He harassed her with lawsuits when she was in Rome, and sent men to insult her when she withdrew to her villa in the country. Before long, Agrippina became sensible that her struggle for power had passed into the appalling experience of a struggle for life against her own son. Nero made several attempts to poison her, but she was on her guard against this familiar weapon. It is said that she had an antidote compounded of walnuts, figs, rue, and salt— Then a freedman in Nero's suite suggested a more insidious scheme. Her country house was in repair, and Anicidas directed the workmen to saw through the heavy timber over her bed, so that the room would collapse when she went to rest. Agrippina was warned, however, and the plot was defeated. By the early spring of the year fifty-nine, Nero had fallen into a mood of the most somber and bitter dejection. Poppaea continued to taunt him with his dependence on his mother, and to display her maddening charms just beyond the range of his eager arms. The better citizens of Rome, on the other hand, now perceived his horrible design, and watched the struggle with anxiety. As he sat at the theater one day in this mood, his attention was caught by one of the elaborate mechanical spectacles which were often put on the stage at the time. A ship sailed into view of the spectators, fell into pieces, and disgorged a number of wild beasts upon the stage. Nero asked Anacetus, who was a skilful mechanic whether he could build a ship that would thus fall to pieces on the water at a given moment the man promised to do so and nero went down to the coast in more cheerful temper it was the month of march when wealthy romans were wont to forsake the city for the marble villas which shone in the spring sun on the flowered hills about the northern corner of the bay of naples the season began with the festival of Minerva on March 19th. With some surprise and suspicion, Agrippina, who had gone down to her villa, received an affectionate invitation to join her son at Baiae for the celebration, and she heard from other quarters that he had announced a desire to be reconciled with her. She went on board the Liburnian galley, which lay off the gardens of her villa at Antium, and sailed to Baiae. Nero met her in the imperial galley, kissed her affectionately, and invited her to a banquet which his friend Otho, the husband of Poppaea, would give that night in honor of their reconciliation. She consented, but it is clear that she wavered between her consciousness and of the utter unscrupulousness of her son, and the bright vision of a return to happiness which he held before her. When the hour came for going, she was told that her galley had met with an accident, but that a superb gilded galley with sails of silk and a military guard on board had been sent as a love-gift from her son in commemoration of their restored affection. She gazed with suspicion on the beautiful object as it lay mirrored in the waters of the little haven, and decided to go over land on a litter to Otho's villa. But the amiable behavior of Nero at the banquet dispelled the last shade of her suspicion. In the joy which his caresses and his well-feigned affection gave her, she did not notice the passing of the hours until midnight when she rose to go. The beautiful ship with the gilded flanks and the silken sails awaited her once more, and this time she embarked on it. Nero kissed her eyes and her hands, put his arms about her, and pressed her to his bosom, held her while he gave a last long look into her eyes, and then abandoned her to the murderer Anacita's. The galley shot out over the smooth-scented waters under a canopy of brilliant stars. Agrippina sat in her cabin in the soft spring air and talked about the happy future with her one male attendant, Creperius Gallus, and her one maid, Aceronia Polia. And suddenly, as they reached the deep water, there was an ugly crack, and the roof of the cabin fell on them. Gallus was killed outright, but the two women were saved, as the stout walls failed to collapse, and there was some misunderstanding among the crew in the dark. The maid rushed to the deck, calling for aid for the Empress. Others say that she represented herself as the Empress, and was slain. Agrippina listened with terror to the crash of timber and the rush of armed men, and realized the treachery of her son. Still she did not court death. She dropped quietly over the side and swam toward the distant shore. Her strength gradually failed, and she was about to abandon the awful struggle when some men who were fishing by night picked her up and took her ashore. Wounded by the falling timbers, exhausted by the struggle, stricken to the heart by the brutality of her son, she nevertheless rallied at once and devised a fresh plan. She calmly sent a message to Nero that, by the favor of the gods, she had survived the wreck of the galley which he had given her, but requested that he would not come to visit her until her wound was healed. Without a word to her attendants about the horrible plot, she ordered the remedies for her condition, and trusted that Nero would repent. Through the remaining hours of the night she lay on her couch with one maid in attendance, her room feebly lit by a single light. The whole country without was alive with men. The shore was lit up with their torches and they gathered about the house to express their joy that agrippina had escaped shipwreck on the very night of so auspicious a reconciliation as the first light of dawn broke on the encircling hills anicetus and his men entered the house with nero's reply she read something of its tenor in their faces and said to their leader hast thou come to visit me then tell my son that i have recovered "'Hast thou come to slay me? "'Then I say, it is not my son who sent thee.' "'A sailor struck her over the head with a stick, "'and she saw that the end had come. "'Tearing aside her loose robe "'and bearing her white body to the men, "'she said sadly, "'Strike here, Anicetus, "'for it was here that Nero was born.' "'She fell dead under a shower of blows.' Nero had heard that his mother had escaped. Dreading that she might stir into flame the resentment of Rome, he called a council of his friends. Seneca is said to have been silent, Burrus indignant. At that moment Agrippina's chamberlain entered with her message. In a flash of cunning, Anicetus threw a sword at his feet and pretended that he had been sent by Agrippina to kill Nero. The emperor accepted the sordid pretext, and, as Borus bluntly refused to send his soldiers to execute her, Anacetus gladly charged himself with the task. He was appointed admiral of one of the fleets for his services. It is even recorded, though details like this must always be regarded with reserve, that when the servants bore their mistress's body to the garden and stripped it for the pile, Nero stood by and said jeeringly, "'I had no idea she was so handsome.'" A report was issued, and a formal announcement made to the Senate that Agrippina had attempted the Emperor's life, and that when Nero sent men to arrest her, she took her own life. And the Senate licked the feet of Nero, decreed games and festivals in gratitude for his preservation, and led the enthusiasm of the people. So well known was the murder that an actor referred mockingly to it in the theatre. Farewell, my father, he said, eating a mushroom. Farewell, mother, he added, imitating the action of a swimmer. The common folk repeated numbers of these grim jokes. But they enjoyed the games of Thanksgiving, and senators and nobles took part in them on the stage and in the arena. And Rome sank swiftly, into the terrible degradation of Nero's later reign, which will occupy us in the next chapter. It is hardly necessary to add a summary estimate of Agrippina's character. In the view of Starr and Berengould, and a few other recent writers, she was queenly, honorable, and pure, and had only the doubtful vices of ambition and pride. For Tacitus and the other Latin writers, she was capable of any enormity, and guilty of most. It will be seen that I hold an intermediate view. She was a woman of great distinction, ability, and strength. Had she lived in an age when virtue was not inexpedient, she would have been an illustrious and virtuous queen. But she had to struggle to obtain and retain power in an age when a new and more intellectual moral standard was replacing an older and more instinctive standard, and where it seemed profitable she availed herself of the moral scepticism which such a change always engenders. She was queenly, but she was not entirely honourable and she was almost certainly not pure. But she served Rome well, and left it happy and prosperous, and her unselfish passion for the advancement of her son, her chivalrous and fatal defense of his injured wife, and the bravery with which she met his unspeakable brutality, do much to outweigh her evil deeds in the scale of Osiris. End of chapter 5, part 2